Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kaplan. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lana Rifkin, partner at the Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston and assistant professor and director of the uveitis service at the New England Eye Center and Tufts Medical Center, and by Dr. Chris Henry, partner at the Retina Consultants of Texas in vitro retinal surgery and uveitis, and an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. So today we're going to be talking about what goes into starting up a new uveitis practice with a special emphasis on starting up a uveitis practice in a private practice setting. So just to get a little bit of background, we'll start with you, Chris. Give us a little bit of background on your training and kind of how you came to be practicing at your current location. Thanks, Akshay. So I did my residency at Bascom Palmer, and then I stuck around and did surgical retina fellowship and chief residency. And then during my time there, I really you know, had a close bond with Tom Albini and Janet Davis. And one thing led to another, and I stuck around and did an extra year of uh, uveitis fellowship. So that's kind of where my training began. How'd you come to practice in Houston? Part of it was family reasons. So uh, my wife is a geologist and had opportunities with the oil and gas position here in Houston. And then somewhat luckily, the practice I joined, uh, Retina Consultants of Houston, which is now called Retina Consultants of, of Texas, Several of the partners there had also trained where I had trained and I'd been friends with them. So I sort of had a connection and I'd actually kind of started talking to this group before I had joined and it ended up being a great fit. Excellent. And, and Lana, tell us a little bit about your training and how you've come to practice in Boston. So I did my medical school and residency at University of Louisville. Um, that's where I'm from, Louisville, Kentucky. And then I did my fellowship at Northwestern in Chicago with Dr. Deborah Goldstein. I originally intended to just do a year, but I really, really loved uveitis and I didn't want to do corneo retina or anything else. I just wanted to do uveitis. So she convinced me that if I stayed another year, she would teach me um, even more. Um, and since we, we got along really well, so I stayed another year, convinced my husband to stay in Chicago. So I did two years of strictly uveitis. And then my husband is from Boston. And so I knew that eventually I needed to end up there. And the way I found OCB was it's, um, you know, it's, it's a very well known practice in the um, New England area. And I literally Googled and found the person who was doing uh, uveitis at the time, Michael Raisman, and sent him an email. And I was like, hey, do you really want to be doing uveitis still? <laughs> <laughs> and it actually like turned out really perfectly because he's uh, he's cornea and uh, refractive surgery um, and was really trying to focus more on that. So he was like, actually, yeah, that would be great if, you know, I didn't do uveitis <laughs> anymore. <laughs> So um, we, we, uh, I met with him and then, you know, met with, with the whole practice. And so our practice is a hybrid model. So we have fellowships uh, that we share with Tufts. So we have cornea, retina, and glaucoma fellows. So we work very closely with Tufts. So I had at the time also emailed Jay Duker, the, the chair there, and I was like, hey, um, I know you probably don't need a dedicated uveitis specialist like all the time, but do you think I could come like once a week, which is what Raisman was doing? So literally I kind of followed in his footsteps. So he was able to step back and I was able to step into the role and he graciously, you know, referred all his patients over to me. And it was like a really nice, smooth transition where, you know, I, I didn't have to start from scratch. And so I've been there now for seven years and I don't really ever intend to leave. <laughs> all right. 
Chris, when you started at your practice, was there another provider already doing uveitis or an established uveitis practice when you joined? Uh, one of my senior partners, Rosa Kim, did not do a formal uveitis fellowship, but she had, she had uh, when she was up in Boston, she'd had uh, kind of some extra uveitis training. So she was doing most of the uveitis for our group. Then there really weren't a whole lot of uveitis specialists in Houston in general. Um, you know, Susan Wittenberg was here. Kelly Larkin was here. But there was there was a definite need in the city. And I sort of took over the the majority of uveitis patients for our practice. And Rosa held on to kind of the patients she had, but sort of most, the majority of the new patients started coming to me. And obviously with uveitis, it can build very quickly. <laughs> There's a need. <laughs> Even in yeah. a big city like Boston, you know, in Boston, there are actually several uveitis specialists. So I was very nervous about what that would look like, about a new, you know, the new kid coming, uh, coming to town. Um, but it actually, you know, like Chris said, there's, there's, there's a great need even, you know, even for, for, for large cities, people, uh, other, other ophthalmologists that don't specialize in uveitis really would love for there to be someone who takes care of these patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it, I, I forgot to mention Ola Goldberg started around the same time I did. And so I actually really liked having other specialists and other groups. And I think it's good to share patients and get second opinions from people outside the practice, I think, for, for particularly difficult cases. And I think uh, that's something I uh, was happy to have. Yeah, I think I think both of you have raised a really good point. You know, there's definitely this concern when you come out, um, if you're doing mostly uveitis, a concern about, you know, being busy enough, which you'll find is often not the case. There's tons of uveitis patients <laughs> waiting to be seen. And especially, you know, if you're doing uveitis plus something else, there's a risk of that also drifting towards mostly uveitis if if you're not careful and especially if you know if if you don't specifically kind of lay that 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 information down in the beginning so um, definitely definitely uh, important things to kind of consider but that being said so Chris what's your current um, practice setup so what's kind of like your split of retina versus uveitis your number of clinic days OR days the uveitis volume is about fifty percent so I do about fifty percent surgical medical retina about fifty percent of my time is uveitis. I do operate one day a week for retina. And then the other four and a half days, so after I operate, I, I actually have a clinic after surgery. Uh, so four and a half days of, of clinic. And then research and clinical trials and all that is on, on the side. Um, so clinical trials are a big focus of our practice, but that's sort of integrated it within our clinic days. But it's it's a busy schedule, that's for sure. Do you have your uveitis practice separated out from your retina practice or is it kind of inter interwoven? I I fully integrate everything. So I, I, I do have a few days that tend to be a little more uveitis heavy. You know, there's certainly some days that are more like 75% uveitis. And then I go to a few rural clinic sites, which tend to be more general retina, but really there's not a day where I don't see a significant number of uveitis, I would say. And I just integrate everything. I don't separate it. Although I do set a little bit of a limit on how many UVS I think I can survive in a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And how about for you, Lana? What's your practice setup look like? So um, OCB, you know, we we actually just um, just bought another practice. So now we've joined. So we used to be 33 doctors and now there's 50 something of us. And I'm really the only one that does like I do 100% uveitis or like 95. Sometimes some, you know, dry eyes and blepharitis sneaks in there. But mostly I do 100% uveitis. Um, and, we, you know, we have a lot of offices. So I'm actually at a different location every single day, which I prefer and enjoy because that allows for me to only see uveitis patients, which is what I wanted to do. I work every day, but Thursdays and Fridays, I do half days, which I think is a really fantastic balance. Um, on, so every day I'm at a different office. Every Thursday, I have a uveitis clinic at Tufts where I teach the residents and fellows. So I have like a really nice hybrid of private practice and, um, and academic practice. I don't operate at all. I do procedures, I do injections and lasers and things, but I, I, I don't operate at all. Great. I mean, so, you know, the focus, obviously, of this episode is kind of discussing, you know, some of that infrastructure, which is critical um, to having a successful UBS practice, even for those of us entering practices which are very successful otherwise, but perhaps don't already have a dedicated UBS provider, you can find that that infrastructure needs are very different. Um, so let's let's get into a couple of those things. So Lana, do you have a dedicated, you know, uveitis coordinator or a dedica- dedicated uveitis technician? So the way it works in our practice is each doctor has their own assistant. Um, sometimes, you know, that assistant is shared between a couple doctors. So when I first started, you know, I was kind of shadowing, you know, going in the footsteps of Michael Raisman because he was kind of the one doing this before me. So we shared an assistant for a while and that assistant was responsible for, you know, booking my schedule, following up on labs, making sure that I see the labs, uh, doing the prior authorizations, et cetera, et cetera. For the first like year and a half to two years, it worked really well for us to share her. And then I got busy on my own and... And uh, Michael was basically like, you need to get your own. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so at that time, I had a fantastic technician who in one of my offices that like I got along with really well. And so the, the job was posted that, you know, I was looking for a dedicated assistant for myself. And she popped in my room one day and was like, hey, I want to be your assistant. And I was like, done. So she's now been my assistant for like five years. And it's fantastic because she was my technician initially as well. So she knows how I run clinic, like why I do things the way I do them. If somebody needs a refill, like which medications she needs to like text or call me and like make sure this is okay. Have I checked labs, et cetera, et cetera, versus like, please just sign this refill for whatever drop. So that works really well um, to have like one dedicated assistant. As far as technicians, um, again, OCB is a is an eat what you kill model, meaning we pay for everything that we use. So like I have my own technicians at, at each office. That technician is with me every single time I'm there. So they know exactly, you know, they know the patients, they know how things run, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really nice. So other days when I'm not there, they work with other doctors. But on the days that I'm at that office, they're only mine. And how about you, Chris? What was your setup with respect to technicians and coordinating care? It took a little while to kind of find uh, the right system. So I'm at a different office location pretty much every day. And what is currently working well is I do have a dedicated assistant who's sort of with me on the ground. She's uh, excellent at scribing. Uh, she kind of knows how I do my notes. I can, tr- I can really trust her. And then behind the scenes, uh, our practice has what's called a, a clinical liaison team. So it's it's a it's a group that kind of makes ref- necessary referrals and things like that. So uh, basically, if I want to send a patient to rheumatology or have a team kind of checking that all my labs have been checked, the sort of behind the scenes clinical liaison team does that part of the puzzle. So 
you know, say if I see a patient, for instance, you know, I'll evaluate them, read out the exam findings, read out, you know, tell the patient my plan. My scribe will kind of get that all in the note. And then if I'm referring to an outside provider, she'll offload that to our clinical liaison team so our clinic can keep flowing. But the behind the scenes team is kind of taking care of some of the details like sending to rheumatology or uh, glaucoma or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's worked well. And then for my clinics to really hum, it's nice to have a second person who can scribe well for uveitis. So we also have a kind of clinic manager at each location. Some are better than others at scribing, uh, but I, I typically will have at least two people who are able to scribe for uveitis, which really, really is super helpful that you can see a high volume of patients more easily. Yeah, again, I think I think all of this is extremely important. Um, you know, when it comes to your uveitis patients, there's a lot of additional time that goes into, you know, getting those referrals out, you know, ch- following up on labs. And it's, it's so critical to have a team that you trust. Um, you know, I know when I started, I was quite... I was not very good at delegating and I felt like I needed to, you know, take care of all these things myself. But once you kind of have a team that you trust, you can, you know, offload some of those responsibilities and then kind of focus just on the, you know, your time in the room with the patient and maybe following up on labs afterwards. So all, all very, very good um, information. I, I like what Lana had to say about, you know, having the same person or continuity because a couple months in your assistants really know how you like to word things and phrase things. And, um, after a while, they've seen most of the subtypes of uveitis, you know, they've seen the bird shots, the, you know, VKH, and they, they start to, to think how you think. And that really, really, really can be helpful. And so you're not kind of uh, having to write these novels every time you see a patient, your scribes can put it succinctly for you, which is, it's just really a treat. So. So I was going to say, I actually, I don't use scribes. I'm very particular with how I like my notes to be. Probably see 30 to 35 patients a day. For uveitis, I think is a pretty good volume. But because I have those dedicated technicians that are with me all the time, you know, as Chris, you were saying, it runs quickly. So they know that if a patient had, you know, history of retinal edema, like they know that patient needs to be dilated. They need an OCT. They don't have to come into the room and interrupt me and ask me if I didn't note it in the chart before or whatever. Um, so definitely, you know, uh, uh, ha- having that uh, is helpful. And as far you know, my assistant, you know, if I have a new patient, she's responsible for making sure that the notes are scanned in, that I have uh, whatever labs that were done previously scanned in. So that really, really helps uh, the flow. I was going to ask, you both brought up lab work. And I think the other thing a lot of us deal with in UVI's clinic outside of the labs are prior authorizations. How are your teams able to do all of that without needing quite so much hands-on effort from you? What's kind of the workflow process from you ordering a lab to making sure labs are okay to making sure refills happen um, so that you're not having to be there every step of the way. So for me, you know, we're on Epic at OCB. So when I order the labs, when they come back, they go directly to me, which is nice. So then um, when my assistant gets a refill request, she knows to look back at my note, first of all, to make sure that that patient was seen within like the last three months or the last however long. Um, She'll put in the refill request, last seen, blah, 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 labs, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, so I don't have to go searching for those things. Um, She she does that for me. At Tufts, if I order labs, I'll never see them again unless I remember them somewhere. So at Tufts, um, if I'm ordering labs, I have to 
like CC my assistant there, who's also the assistant for like six other doctors. So it's a little bit less efficient to, you know, for something that I'm really concerned about, then I have them check up on labs, you know, a couple days later. And sometimes I'll text them like, hey, did you remember to look at the labs, whatever, but it, it is definitely less efficient. Fortunately, Tufts is also switching over to Epic soon. So that I think will be much better. The other thing at Tufts, I have residents and fellows. So I have them order labs. <laughs> so that they come back to them and then they can alert me if there's a problem because I'm only there one day a week and it's a little bit less organized. How about you, Chris? I think one thing in particular that I encounter that's challenging is I have a pretty large referral network in here in Wisconsin, which means I actually have patients oftentimes that cannot get their lab work done in my health system because of their insurance coverage. And how do you guys handle those types of issues too with outside labs, you know, faxing yeah. back at random times? I have a system where all of my labs come to an e-fax. So I actually encourage all of my patients to go to a Quest or a LabCorp because you can pretty much always look, find and locate their lab through the cloud. If I order a lab, uh, the result from Quest or LabCorp will come back to my e-fax, which comes to me as an email. So I basically review all of them myself. And then I will text or email my assistant like, hey, Kristen, can you let... Miss Chandler, no, her CBC CMP was okay. She's safe to continue this medication or can give them results. I'll review it myself, but then I'll let my assistants do the communication about the results of the testing. And then if there's anything substantial that comes back, like, you know, making a new diagnosis based on a lab value, I'll just have my assistant clarify that we'll discuss it in more depth at the next clinic visit, but that, you know, a lab test was positive for birdshot or and then for more urgent things, you know, if somebody comes back positive for syphilis, then I'm going to call that page myself, be like, okay, we're, we're, we're headed to the hospital today. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, or, uh, or, okay, you got, t if, if it's something really um, kind of personal or serious, then I'll, I'll usually communicate directly with the patient myself. You know, if someone has tuberculosis and needs to start therapy, things like that. Um, so just, it depends, but uh, really I'll review it through my e-fax and then triage based on the significance of the results. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very interesting throughout training, certainly during fellowship and now in practice. Once you tell a patient to get labs, it's, it's sometimes, you know, just hit or miss. You're not sure if they're going to have it done, where they had it done, whether, whether they had it done, the results weren't sent to you. So for my practice, we have a labs coordinator. And so every time a lab is ordered, and we do it all on like little lab order forms, you know, that is kind of scanned into their chart. And they basically have a running list of people that, you know, have to have their labs drawn. And so she's like calling them, finding out where did you get your labs done and checking my clinic schedule and if someone is due for labs and hasn't had that done. So I think there's, again, a, a huge amount of help that you can have from staff to make sure that um, from the point of labs being ordered, to getting back to you, all that is kind of taken care of. I think it's impressive how each of us have our own approaches to actually have a part-time RN that helps with that in our practice as well. But I think it really speaks to when you're going out into negotiating for a new job as a just out of fellowship uveitis practitioner, how important thinking about these resources that aren't clinic-based are because I think during fellowship so often the system's already in place and you're not designing it that it's easy to overlook these types of needs in thinking about your imaging technology and how many technicians you'll have in clinic and how many lanes. And I think this conversation really highlights that importance. I think it's important to have kind of a double check in place for labs too. So, you know, the theoretically, every test I, 
order should come direct directly back to my email because that's the account it was ordered from. But my sort of boots on the ground main assistant also keeps a double double uh, checklist of and make sure we get results back on every patient too. And then at the start of clinic, anybody who has labs that are coming back, they'll they'll actually preprint for me, which really really helps. Um, you know, if it, it's there's nothing more frustrating than seeing a patient be like, oh wait, labs aren't here. Wait, okay, now we got to go back and track those down. It's like if they're there. It just helped. It's so helpful uh, to, to just keep rolling through clinic. One thing that I found helpful is um, if I'm seeing a new patient, I'm ordering labs or whatever. Um, first of all, I have follow up kind of soon so that um, I don't drop the ball on getting their labs and things. Um, and the other thing that in the note, I will I will say, you know, um, I have smart phrases for everything. And we'll probably talk about that also. Um, one of my smart phrases is, you know, advise patient to obtain labs. Patient will obtain labs at dot, dot, dot. And then I always ask the patient, OK, where are you going to get your labs so that when I do have to track them down, I don't need my assistant to call you and blah, blah, blah. But she can just look at my note. You told me you were going to get labs at blah, blah, blah. So she can just call that place directly and then I'll have them before your next visit. Well, that's a great idea. I like that kind of having a, an idea of exactly where they're having labs done before they leave your office. That, that's, that's a really good idea. So what about for prior authorizations, right? So obviously, you know, Chris, your office handles prior outs all the time for, you know, injectables. Um, but what about for, you know, medication? So if you want to get someone on Celsept or Humira, what's, what's kind of the process for that? So something I have chosen to do, which I, I don't think all uveitis specialists do, is I actually, I actually manage mostly with a rheumatologist um, and you know, when I moved to Houston, I basically just went to each of the regions of the city I go. And I went and met with a bunch of different rheumatologists and I sort of found the ones I liked. And so I have, you know, like a dozen or 15 rheumatologists I like to work with. And I usually let them prescribe. So, you know, basically I'll use my clinic liaison team to make an appointment with my favorite rheumatologist in that region I know the rheumatologist well enough that I can suggest like, hey, I would like this patient to be on Celsep, this patient to be on Humira. Okay, this patient, it's really bad. They need, they need to get Rituxan. And I've sort of built up a trusting relationship with the rheumatologist that I, I really let them do all the work. And uh, that actually, it saves a lot of time. But beyond it just being convenient, I often find that a rheumatologist will provide added value to what I would have considered. They're kind of monitoring the bone density. They're they're kind of thinking a little bit bigger picture than I may be thinking. Sometimes I'll be surprised or really they'll really have an insight that I appreciate, even if it's, you know, just a, you know, solely a uveitis problem. And so I, I would say probably close to 90% of my patients I'll manage with room. And it's actually quite easy to do once you kind of find a group of people you like to work with. And you know, so most of the time I'm driving home, I'm calling a rheumatologist or things like that, checking in or, you know, on HIPAA compliant texting or, you know, things like that, checking in. But it to me, it has saved a lot of time. And I think patients benefit from it. Uh, for the for the patients that I manage on my own, it's typically those who don't have time to kind of see a second specialist. We've actually started working with a program where you can, for Humira in particular, where they will like do all the behind the scenes work and our clinic liaison team will coordinate that. But then we kind of use a service that, you know, does a lot of the prior OS. And then 
it'll first try to go through a mail service. And then if that doesn't work, they'll sort of forward that on to a local pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lana, what about for you? How is that handled for you? So for me, it's a little bit differently. I do manage most immunosuppression myself, unless for children, I co-manage with pediatric rheumatologists. And then if there is systemic disease, I usually co-manage those as well. And I think that one you know major point that Chris made that I, I really agree with is making friends with these rheumatologists and other providers is so important. Because even if I'm you know, managing the immunosuppression myself, if they have another issue that, you know, my immunosuppression may be helping or hurting or whatever, it's really, really great to like shoot a quick text or call the co-managing rheumatologist and be like, hey, I just saw this patient, you know, this is what's going on. Like, do you, you know, can I, I'm going to do this. Is this cool with you or whatever? But as far as prior authorizations, I mean, Celsept and Methotrexate, I don't have any issues with, but Humira, uh, my fabulous assistant that does everything for me, does this as well. So she does, there's like an online portal where you enter all the patient's information and et cetera, et cetera. So she handles that part. Uh, she also does this for Ozardex and Utique. Usually what I do, if I'm if I'm anticipating an Ozardex or Utique, you know, I have the patient sign a benefit investigation form that allows for her to call their insurance and do a benefits investigation. Then she handles it from there. Lana, do you mostly do your infusions then through Tufts or is there other infusion centers you access, or is that just not something you personally then prescribe? So I don't prescribe infusions myself. If I feel a patient needs infusions, that is when I would call my friendly rheumatologist and have that arranged. Um, And fortunately in Boston, you know, we really have fantastic rheumatologists who I've been very fortunate enough to work with for the past seven years. And usually they're really great if I call them and I'm like, hey, you know, this person is failing this. I really um, need you to try Remicade and this is the dose I think they need and this is the frequency and then they arrange it for me. Yeah, I think the one point to kind of bring up here is that, you know, even if you're someone that feels comfortable prescribing infusions, you know, standalone infusion centers sometimes can be challenging to get your patients into in a timely fashion. So there have been situations in which I think a patient needs, you know, rituximab, Remicade, what have you. And, you know, by the time I can get them into an outpatient infusion center, it's going to be, you know, six to eight weeks. Whereas the infusion center that your rheumatologist has can probably get them in in a week or two or sooner, right? So I've gotten them in same day before sometimes. Right, right. Yeah. So I think, I think it's definitely, definitely useful to, even if you plan on, you know, going out there and prescribing all your own immunosuppression and infusions and everything else, having some, some way of providing kind of timely access to those infusions, whether that's your rheumatology office or what have you. When I first started practice, a lot of my partners, you know, did some uveitis. There wasn't a, a standalone uveitis provider. So for, for example, so certain things like you know, taking aqueous samples, you know, different people kind of send them to different labs. So Chris, do you have, you know, like a specific lab that you use for aqueous samples for viral PCR or anything like that? Yeah, so we really lucky here in Houston. We have a kind of terrific ocular pathologist, uh, Patty Chavez Barrios. She's um, affiliated with Houston Methodist Hospital. They do in-house PCR. So for AC taps, no matter what clinic I'm at, you know, we have a Houston Methodist Dropbox. And so I can draw a sample and then the, a courier will come get it and, you know, deliver the sample that day. So we can do multiplex PCR for viruses and toxoplasmosis. Um, and it's been very good. And she'll actually look at the cytology for me from an AC tap. She'll run the sample and she'll spin it down and look at the cell type. So I can actually tell if it's like 
neutrophils or macrophages, lymphocytes. She'll give me the breakdown. It's really fantastic. And then I send my vitreous biopsies also to her. So I'll actually send it to, to her and then she'll triage it out to micro. And, you know, look, you know, if it's, I'm most suspicious for lymphoma, she'll kind of triage, you know, what samples go where. And it's really made my life quite easy. So I basically just tell her, I think, you know, I think this is infectious. I think this is lymphoma. I'll give her a, a diluted vitreous sample of the cassette and, and she can help kind of parcel those out in the most uh, expeditious manner. If I want to get kind of pan bacterial or pan fungal testing, I do, that still does get sent out to uh, University of Washington. And I've had sort of variable success with that in terms of it, it, it can take quite a long time to get results back. And I've actually had a lot fewer positive test results than I would have expected compared to my, the in-house testing where the results tend to be what I think they'll be. Right. And Lana, what about for you? So for me, it varies which office I'm at, um, where it's easiest to send what sample. So at Tufts, obviously, it's the easiest. Then I just do my sample and I send it down to the lab. There's a great pathologist there who does just ocular samples. So uh, a lot of things are sent out. So um, I think they go to Mayo Clinic mostly for us. But if I'm in a you know satellite location and I'm really concerned that a patient has endophthalmitis or something, I'll have them go to Tufts that day. And just because I have fellows there and I can call the fellow and be like, hey, this patient is coming. I need you to do this, this, and that. And then that get, gets arranged that way. If I'm at another location and like, I just, I think it's like herpetic, I write uh, erdocyclitis or whatever, and I want to do an AC tap, I'll, I'll do it and have it sent to an MGH laboratory. And usually all of our offices will have a drop box kind of like uh, Chris described and they'll pick it up and they'll take it to wherever I want. Since, uh, you know, I don't operate, but if I'm suspecting lymphoma, then I co-manage those two with my retina uh, partners. And I'll ask one of my retina partners to see that patient and I'll kind of dictate, you know, like the, these are the things you need to send for. Um, and they like, to do those uh, either at Tufts or MGH, not our satellite location, just because it goes a lot more smoothly if you're in an academic setting and uh, can send for, for those things. So I wanted to circle back when we started this conversation. I think we all kind of had this approach of if you build it, they will come in uveitis practice, which I do think holds true on some, on some level. But when you both started in your practices, how did you market yourself early on? And how long did it really take you to start getting busy um, with the uveitis practice, I think particularly in your case, Lana, since that's primarily your main focus. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, I was very fortunate that I came into a practice where there was a person who did uveitis, not 100% uveitis, but some uveitis, and he had a good relationship with referring optometrists. And, you know, our practice itself, I came into, uh, we had 30-something partners. And when they learned that there was somebody who was very willing and happy to take care of their, all your uveitis patients, they were more than happy to, to send them my way. So that was really wonderful. You know, I, I was very nervous because, you know, in Boston, and there are several uveitis people. So I, I really was nervous about how all that was going to play out. But it's turned out to be, you know, really great. You know, I have great relationships with the Mass Ioneer folks and BMC. You know, we, we, we all get together at various rounds and things. And uh, there's definitely plenty of uveitis <laughs> to go around. Uh, and it, it act, honestly, my practice probably built up a little bit more quickly than we anticipated because, like I said, in a year and a half, uh, Michael was like, you need to get your own assistant. Like, she can't. I, I need her, too. <laughs> um, so probably a year and a half to two years before I really felt like this is the volume that I'd like to see. 
And then the, one of the things that really helped me other than, you know, Raisman passing his patients to me was we do a lot of optometrist seminars and I like to give talks. So I felt that that was a really, really good way of getting my name out there. I started, uh, you know, whenever OCB would put on uh, optometry seminars, they were like, Dr. Rifkin, do you want to do this? And yes, yes, I do. So, and I always give my cell phone number and all my contact information during all of those talks. And I think the optometrists really appreciated having access to me. And, you know, I think, you know, those of us who do uveitis, we do it because we love it, right? And I think that those referring doctors feel it and see it, and they're really excited to share those patients with you. And so that that has been that has been ex- extremely helpful. OCB is very active in all our local organizations, like New England Ophthalmology Society is a huge meeting, and you know a lot of my partners are on various boards and things. And once they heard that you know I like to give uveitis talks, they invited me to do those things, and then it kind of established a rapport with not just other optometrists but other referring ophthalmologists. Uh, so yeah, for me it was giving talks and you know being friendly. <laughs> And Chris, yeah. what about you? I, you know, my my experience I would say is almost almost exactly like Lana's. Our practice has kind of a large referral network. I think we have over like two thousand different ophthalmologists and optometrists who, at, at various points, have referred to us. And so when I when I walked in, my partners had this sort of massive pile of uveitis patients they were ready to <laughs> to pass on to me because they knew I was going to be doing uveitis. So there were sort of these people they've been holding on to that they were happy to, to offload. Um, so that, that, that got busy quickly. And then as I was building my retina and uveitis practice, I kind of went to Maine referring docs and met them. Um, that was helpful. And also like Lana, you know, kind of gave some uveitis talks to, to referring optometrists out in the community. But I think really once people find out you do uveitis, there's almost no work <laughs> as long as you do a good job. Like as long as you do a good job and communicate about the patients, like they're going to come. I I really, I think it's one, it's one specialty where you're not going to ever have to worry about having enough patients. There's such a need. There's so, there's not enough people who do uveitis and, and these patients don't get good care elsewhere. A lot of the time, Uh, you know, these patients really can value from seeing it being seeing a dedicated uveitis specialist so i think if if you if you show up you do a good job you communicate it the word is going to get out and you're going to you're going to be overwhelmed with patience i don't know what what about you akshay and laura do you feel the same i think if you build it they will come is a very accurate description of uveitis and 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 i would say from a patient perspective once they meet somebody that has this dedicated training, they're so happy that you know what this is and how to manage it that oftentimes, even if you would like that patient perhaps to maybe be co-managed or spend some of their time with another provider, I find frequently they just don't want to do that. They want to see you, the expert. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. Again, my experience is pretty much identical to Chris and Lana. I think you definitely put in, you know, the time to do these talks and establish relationship with your referring doctors as anyone should. But uh, the uveitis portion of your practice, if you decide to be completely uveitis or uveitis plus something else, is likely going to get busy a lot more quickly than you anticipated. 
and it's important, and we'll kind of get into this a little bit later, um, it's important to, to take that into consideration when you're figuring out what your needs are going to be in your practice when you're kind of looking at that contract um, to kind of begin with. So kind of transitioning to this, so Chris, what is your what is your average you know clinic template look like in a day that you're seeing both retina and uveitis patients? I would say a, in a typical day, I'll see um, kind of 50 to 60 patients and about... I would say 20 to 30 will be uveitis. So, and then I, I try to, I try to split it like, you know, basically, you know, about 15 per half day is about the most I feel I can see when I'm doing retina on top of that. I usually try to, to not see more than one to two new uveitis per half day. So, I mean, you'll definitely get days where you see like five or six that out of necessity, but, um, I, to to try to keep a balance and keep my sanity, I think, yeah, that that's about the ratios I typically will see. And Lana, what about for you? Uh, I see strictly uveitis, but I do see you know uh, both both adults and kids. Um, I don't really split those up. I probably see thirty to thirty five patients up per day. I like to have no more than like three new patients and three to four consults. Um, just because if, you know, I call consults like within my practice, because then the documentation is a lot easier that, you know, those things carry over. If it's a brand new patient to the practice, then it's just a lot more documentation. And I think three is kind of the max that, that I can do there. What's the workflow when a new patient comes into your practice? My technicians know that any patient that I've never seen before do, does not get dilated no matter what. So um, they come in, they, you know, the, the technician, you know, I, I, I have a smart phrase for new patients, consults and follow up. And I think that really, really helps because I literally tell the techs exactly what to ask and say. Um, and all they have to do is just <laughs> do what I say. And <laughs> So they get the HPI, they get the relevant um, information, the symptoms, the onset, the review of systems. And I'm very specific and particular about the, the things I want them to ask and review of systems and medications, et cetera. Then they come to me. I review all that. I ask, you know, I ask some specific, uh, more targeted questions. And then I um, do their anterior chamber exam undilated and then I dilate them, send them out. And, you know, if I feel they need any testing or whatever, that's when I would do that. At that point, I see another quick patient or two, and then I bring them back and then we review whatever imaging and, you know, I tell them what I think, et cetera, et cetera, and send them on on their way. Usually for a new patient, you know, we tell patients that um, they should anticipate about two hours for a new patient visit. And Chris, what about you for a new patient visit? You know, my new patients are sort of in the the general kind of combined uveitis retina flow. So, you know, they'll they'll check in. I I actually don't check before they're dilated. All my new uveitis, I'll get a OCT and an RNFL at baseline, and then you know after examining them, I'll determine if they need um, FA ICG. I definitely see more posterior segment uveitis, so I don't see as much dedicated anterior uveitis, and I actually don't try to put too much on my techs because I going to different locations. I just, you know, and the tech turnover is, is, you know, substantial that I just don't know. There's too, there's too much variability in who's working them up that I try to just keep, have them keep it simple. And I just want an accurate vision and accurate pressure and accurate medications. I want to know the drops they're on and the systemic medications they're on. I ask for that to be accurate. And then 
they do technically do like a review of systems and things like that, but I'll really, I'll really do that myself on the first visit, you know, but yeah, otherwise similar to Lana. Any tips for when the patients are coming back for return visits to help kind of expedite and keep those flowing smoothly? I was just going to say, so my, my smart right phrase for follow-ups, uh, for follow-up patients says, from last visit, are you better, same, or worse? Um, have there been any changes since the last time I saw you? And then I'm very particular on, I want the medications, like Chris said, you know, the medications have to be updated. Um, I want to know exactly how many times a day they're taking what and dosages, et cetera. So I think that's, for me, the most important for, for follow-up. Yeah, I, I, I try to keep my notes also consistent. So like, you know, I would say probably the most common diagnosis I have is disseminated chorioretinal inflammation, you know, so that'll be my diagnosis. And then I'll say, you know, likely birdshot or likely VKH. And then I'll say initial labs. So I'll have all the initial labs listed there. So I'll know what I've tested right there. And those things will generally get carried forward. And then I'll say right eye, you know, quiet active, left eye, quiet active, these are the systemic medications. These are the drops. That that's that's what my note is. Um, and then from visit to visit, it stays very consistent, and I can basically just update it. Okay, they're active. They're quiet. If there's anything relevant that I need to add, I can add to that. And then at you know, sir, at the bottom of the note, I'll be like, okay, we need to escalate therapy. You know, uh, you know, I recommend we'll add this medication. You know, so it just uh, it keeps it very easy to tweak moving forward once you sort of have a standard system of doing things. Yeah, I think this is all extremely helpful. I mean, and it's also interesting how there some things are very similar um, between you guys and some are a little different. So I'm, I'm going to throw mine in as well because there's some things that are similar, some things that are different. So, so for us, for all new patients, which we have some lead time, you know, not the patient that's being sent to you urgently, um, usually we have some one of our staff members calls them and gets all the history over the phone um, a day or two prior. Um, so they kind of have a lot of time to accurately get meds and history and all that sort of stuff. And then on the actual visit date, it's more of a focus on the stuff Chris mentioned, you know, the, getting an accurate vision, um, pressure, that sort of stuff. I will see all new patients undilated and with an OCT. Um, I, I seldom have a patient in whom I don't feel could benefit from, from an OCT. And then based on what I see, we'll dilate and get additional imaging as necessary. For our return patients, you know, one of the things I struggled with early on was that they were all mixed in, like like Chris with all my retina patients, and the workflow is so different. And it it is it was it's hard to basically see every UVS patient twice, see them once undilated, and then see them dilated again. And so I've been, you know, I have two UVS coordinators that pretty much for the last year and a half have been training to do AC checks, <laughs> and they have they've gotten very very good at it. So it's it's something that you know hopefully eventually they just kind of completely take over, and I just see them dilated. Um, but again, there's just various ways to do it. Um, you just have to kind of consider what's what's best for your individual practice and what works best with the time you have available. Our uh, we for for our practice we use MDI and we we can color code the visits. So patients who are uveitis are red, you know, and, mm. and like injection patients are yellow, and an injection patient where you exam is blue. Post ops are orange. So. Like, um, there that's sort of color coded. So the, I think that the workup techs know if they need to be a little more careful with the UVS patients and then the scribes will know which cases to, to be ready for. So like I have assistants who really don't do UVS, they'll kind of take the retina cases and then the people who know UVS will take the UVS cases when they kind of come along with me. 
So Lana, how much time do you spend, you know, outside of clinic on activities related to patient care? Very little. Um, I really like to have all my notes and labs and everything nicely tucked away before I leave. I have four kids, so I need to make sure that, you know, when I'm at work, I'm on, but when I'm not, I'm not. So I think I've learned to be pretty efficient to make sure that all my notes are closed, all my labs are ordered, all my prescriptions are signed, so that when I close out Epic, you know, I'm mom. So I, I, I try not to uh, to do any work things at home unless, you know, I do some consulting things and, and, and things like that. But that, you know, I, ch- I choose when I do those things. And so I can schedule my time appropriately. Once in a while, you know, if I have a very complicated patient and I don't have time to finish the note at home, I'll do that. But that's like, a, then I'll do that note at home. But that's extremely rare. I do not, I try not to do notes or anything when I'm done for the day. And Chris, what about you? I, I try to do the same. I, you know, I think the majority of things during the day I can delegate to our liaison team. So the, the critical referrals and things like that. And what I'll typically do for the day is I'll have a little crib sheet of sort of key items to follow up on. Like a, particularly if like a, if a patient needs to be doing better, is not doing as well as I'd hope, then I, and I kind of have a plan for them of kind of escalating therapy, then for, uh, I'll typically call doctors on the way home and just kind of update them and be like, okay, I, you know, this patient, we really, we really need to do better. This is what I think we ought to do. And, um, that, that works pretty well. And so by the time I'm home from commuting, I usually don't have too much more to do, but, uh, sometimes it's unavoidable. And sometimes when you're home, you're getting the calls back. So inevitably it sort of bleeds over, uh, but you just try to do your best. Yeah, I think, you know, for us also, because, uh, you know, I I don't take call per se for my own patients, um, our fellows do. So, um, but I've made it very clear to all of our fellows that like any of my patients, like they text or call or email me on because they don't, you know, unless they're at Tufts in my private practice, they don't follow me in clinic. So they don't know those patients. And I would much rather them call me and ask me a question or text me or whatever. So, um, so in that regard, I guess, you know, I, I do do some work stuff at home if the fellow needs something. Um, the other thing that um, I find helpful, and I don't know how healthy this is, but I always, you know, I, I pack lunch and I eat it in my room. And during that time is when I catch up on callbacks or, you know, email or, or whatever lab things I need to do. And I, I think that that saves me for, from having to do it at home. Uh, Laura, I'm kind of curious about you. How much time outside of work um, do you dedicate? That's a good question, Akshay. I'm not quite the same model of efficiency as Lana and Chris here. Um, I would say I probably do spend several hours outside of work um, doing charting, prior authorizations, reviewing labs, coordinating care. I do think some of this time is spent with my referrals that are outside of our own health network, which oftentimes have more work with them as we're getting external labs sent back in by fax that we need to then review and annotate into our electronic medical record system. Um, And I think we spend a lot more time coordinating care sometimes when we're working with providers that aren't in our own electronic record system with needing to get records, calling those providers back to discuss uh, treatment options. Uh, Particularly, I think this is a challenge with some of my referrals that are from maybe further out of town where the patients don't come to see me personally quite as often. We're actually working with their local providers more to provide guidance uh, as a consultant a little bit more. Staffing does play a role in it, though. I do find that my time outside of work has been much reduced since at my current practice, I have a part-time nurse to help me with a lot of these tasks. 
at my prior practice, I didn't have that same level of ancillary support staff. It wasn't something I really understood I should probably have negotiated for when I was initially looking at, at jobs. As a fellow, we already had kind of a working system to practice in that someone else had set up, and I didn't totally understand what went into the level of support you might need as a UEITIS specialist outside of the clinic. Um, but I do think that I'm always happy to learn for ways to be more efficient, and it's been good to hear some of the other practice patterns people may able to employ here and maybe think about ways that I can try to incorporate that into my own practice. Um, but that brings us back to our next thing that we think we need to talk about a little bit. And for Chris and Lana, what advice or what things would you maybe recommend people that are looking at negotiating maybe their first job out of UVI's fellowship should be asking for in their contracts um, beyond the you know obvious things like your salary and health benefits um, when it comes to their clinical practices? Are there particular resources that you think that they should try to ask for? What advice would you have for the UVI's person going into practice as opposed to maybe a general ophthalmologist? Know that you're valuable. You know, like um, there aren't many people who can do UVI's. You have a skill set that others don't have. You joining a practice, you t- you help other doctors be more efficient because you're taking their complicated patients and they can see the easy patients. I guess in general, just negotiating, know that you're valuable. You bring a uni- unique skill set, and and I think it's entirely reasonable and smart to negotiate help on the side. And you need to explain that you know these patients take extra time. There's behind the scene works that that needs to be taken care of, and. You know, I'm I'm not going to be able to be doing all these things myself, and this is sort of a package deal. So, yeah, I, I I would agree with what you're saying there, Laura. What someone told me, and I thought was a helpful mindset framing. It's I I operated some cataract surgery, but it's a it's a minority of my practices. Was that someone told me a busy surgical ophthalmologist wouldn't schedule all their own surgeries, mm-hmm. would they? And I said, well, yeah, no, of course not. Why would they? They wouldn't, I, and then they said, well, you wouldn't be expected to call those patients the day before their surgery to tell them to remain NPO at midnight and give them their scheduling instructions, right? And I was like, well, no, of course not. And someone said, well, why would you, as a UVI specialist, be expected to be providing that same level of not at the top of your licensed care for all this care coordination? That's, that's where having a nurse or these dedicated assistants is exactly what you should be asking for. And I thought that was a very wise way of putting it to help me feel like, like you said, Chris, you are worth this extra resource. And it's really not an extra resource as much as a different type of resource, but one that you should have. So my situation is a little bit different because, you know, I came into a practice again, like I said, we're an eat what you kill model. So every doctor really like we're, we're our own little uh, practice. So like we do, each of us kind of structures things how we want. So our, we don't really have a contract per se. Like if I wanted to have seven assistance or 12 techs, I could, but I would have to pay for all of them myself also. So, um, you know, my, I didn't really have a, a contract per se. It was more a, you know, you're coming in, like, this is what you're, you know, we think that your, um, your take home, like should be, but you know, you can edit it however you want because it's really, you know, you see the patients, you make the money and you pay, you pay for this, this and that. And if you want to edit it throughout the year, you know, that's fine too. I, I didn't really have much negotiation going on because it was like, you know, this, you kind of do you, <laughs> which, 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 which I, you know, really works great for, for me. <laughs> yeah, And I think, I think there's definitely, um, you know, it can be a little bit of a moving target. I, I think it's, it's hard sometimes, you know, when you're, 
um, you know, joining a practice, maybe maybe a practice that isn't specifically looking for someone with UVS training. You just happen to have an interest in it, and you're you're bringing it to a practice. It's hard to ask for perhaps too much upfront, but once you've kind of shown that the volume and the value exists, whether that's, you know, six months, a year later, um, you can certainly, you know, add and request those things and people can probably understand the need for it a little bit better than they may before you even have a, you know, half full day or something like that. So um, I think, I think it's something that you can continue to negotiate, um, but just you should certainly keep, keep these things in mind um, before starting practice as well. So, so kind of moving on. So, you know, Chris, obviously you're in a, in a practice that is heavily involved in, you know, clinical trials. And, and so you have a very strong clinical trial infrastructure set up for, you know, retina um, type clinical trials. So, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it, it automatically guarantees you, you know, access to uveitis clinical trials. So uh, what was the process of kind of getting involved in uh, uveitis clinical trials, especially, you know, being in a private practice, which in all honesty, maybe only in the last, I don't know, 10 years or 15 years is maybe a thing in the, for mm. uveitis, um, you <laughs> yeah. know, where, the, you know, it's usually only under the, under the uh, ceiling of a university. Again, I feel like I was super spoiled in that we, so at any given time, our practice will have like 30 to 40 clinical trials, you know, primarily retina. We have like dozens of research employees. Um, so they are, they knew how to negotiate all the contracts. They know how to uh, kind of do all the bus- behind the scene monitor visits, paperwork. I mean, it just it it was all really set up there. And my my senior partner Rosa Kim had been involved with uveitis trials, particularly the NEI trials, and had done a good job enrolling patients. And so when new uveitis ca- trials came up, it was just very easy to be a part of that. So you know, Clearside trials, um, Santon trials. I think, you know, the industry sponsored trials as well as the NEI trials were a part of all those, but I really had, did not have to do a lot of work because we had the infrastructure there. All I really had to do was enroll patients. So, you know, recruit, uh, patients and enroll patients. And I think if you do a good job recruiting and enrolling, there'll be more opportunities that come, come from that. Some trials are easier than others to enroll. So like, you know, the, the clear side trials are super easy, you know, the current Santon trial is really a challenge. Um, <laughs> NEI trials are very are, are quite easy, too. NEI trials are, are great. So uh, but just it depends on the individual trial. But it, it, each patient I'm seeing or each each day I try to you know be aware if a patient might be a candidate for a trial and try to be on the lookout for that, too. I have a very kind of similar experience to Chris. I um, am also similarly spoiled that, you know, one of my partners is Jeff Heyer, um, and he's like huge in, uh, in ophthalmology and retina research. So he has a whole dedicated research team. And when I came on, um, Mike Raisman was also doing some trials. So there was already uh, an infrastructure for clinical trials. And then once they learned that I wanted to do uveitis trials, it was very easy. I kind of like attached myself to Raisman's clinical, you know, research team on, until I, you know, grew up a little bit and got my own. But it, it, it I, I didn't have to start from scratch because Jeff's people taught my people, etc. And as far as like how to get these clinical trials, you know, because I spent two years with Dr. Goldstein, I felt like a lot of Clearside and some others, you know, they, they got to know me during those two years. And when they knew that I was going to be going up to Boston, then they reached out to me there. And I just like, continued as a PI rather than sub-I. And then similarly, as Chris said, you know, if you 
if you are successful in enrolling, then they kind of, they find you or, you know, in, in my practice, because I, I have, a, you know, some senior partners, um, they're wonderful about if they're, if they're contacted by some place that they're like, hey, we have this uveitis clinical trial, they're very wonderful about saying, hey, you know, I don't really do this, but my partner, you know, Lana Rifkin does. And so they're very good about passing those opportunities on to me. Um, similarly with like, you know, expert witness things and, and, and those kinds of opportunities as well. I think that, you know, uh, the way I got started in that is, you know, somebody approached a partner of mine who was like, I don't really want to do this. And then emailed me, Lana, do you want to do this? Um, and then I think that kind of got the ball rolling. And, you know, if you, if, if you get to know like the various CROs, you know, then they know that you're, you know, like pretty okay to work with and they'll recommend you to other places, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, so basically, you know, you know, companies are obviously looking to see if you have a research infrastructure, right? A, a history of recruiting, um, you know, if, even if it's not for UVI's trials, for other trials, and then you have the volume to support, um, you know, involvement in a trial. So if you have, you know, multiple, if you're involved in multiple UVI's trials at the same time, um, you know, it's perhaps not as appealing, um, you know, if you only have one other UVS trial running or something to that effect, but there are there are mechanisms to get involved, kind of regardless of your setting, if you have the volume um, and infrastructure to kind of support that. Well, I think we'd like to thank our speakers, Lana, Chris. Thank you again for coming in and joining us. We hope that you continue to have wonderful, successful practices, and hopefully, we'll have you back for another episode sometime in the future. Thanks so much for having us. I love this idea for a podcast. Look forward to listening to it on my drives. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you and good luck to everyone. Take care and stay safe, everyone.